Well, how many of you heard of the hit TV show called The Voice? Anybody? Anybody? It looks like we got our own voice thing going on here, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But this show, the three-time Emmy Award-winning show, The Voice, is, is really a, kind of a cool little show. They, what they do is they take some of the top vocal talent throughout the country, and they set them up in a competition, which in and of itself is, is sort of uh, not unique at all, really. I mean, a lot of shows do that. But what makes The Voice unique as a show and, and kind of exciting to watch is that they take these superstar vocalists that are already famous, that are already at the top of the game, and they pair them with one of these up-and-young-coming you know, vocalists and they, and, they, and they coach them, right? And they're, and they're teaching them how to be the very best that they can be. And the hopes is, is that they become the next big thing, that they become the voice of America and the world. Now, what's interesting, when I think about this little show, it's true, they have some very, very talented people on this show. But I'm gonna tell you something. I don't care how talented they are, none of those people will shape the course of human history like the voice of one man who cried out in the wilderness, a man named Isaiah. Now, I want you to think about this, this name, Isaiah, this man named Isaiah. What's so amazing about him is we know his name and we still have his writings among us, and yet we know very, very little about him as a person. As a matter of fact, what we know is that his, his father's name was Amos, and that he was from the land of Israel, or Israel and Judah, and, and that's pretty much it. Other than that, we don't know anything about him, but here's what's so incredible, is that this man out of nowhere became the voice for God. He, he literally became known as the prophet of God, the voice of God. God chose him to speak on, on his behalf and God used him to, to move and to challenge and literally to change human history. He became the voice of God. As a matter of fact, uh, there's this passage in the book of Isaiah that kind of, uh, he, where Isaiah is like, putting himself into the story, but he doesn't give his own name to it. He simply uses a different phrase. And you can see if you can pick this up. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse three, it says this, a, what does it say? A voice, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He just refers to himself as the voice. Now this freaks me out a little bit. Can you imagine you, can you imagine you being in such relationship with God, so tight with God, that it doesn't matter your pedigree, and it doesn't matter your past, and it doesn't matter which, which land you come from or what you have achieved, because there's nothing given other than that this man becomes the voice of God. Could you imagine you being in such tight relationship with God that God chooses you to speak to the world on his behalf. That's crazy, isn't it? To be so tight with him, to walk with him, to know him, to sense his presence in such a way huh, that God would look at you and say, I want you to be my voice to the world. It's an amazing thing. And what's really amazing is that God wants the same thing for you and me. He really does. Not, not that we're gonna like write a new book and have it inserted in the Bible. Nobody's putting like, hey, the book of Jeremy, all right? It's, it's just not gonna happen, okay? Um, but, but listen, for you and for me, 
God wants us to do life with him in such a way that you know him, that you feel him, that you sense him. And listen, listen, that you reflect his presence to the world. So much when they look at you, they say, there goes a man of God. There goes a woman of God. They're speaking with the voice of God. What an amazing thing. Now, we are in this series called Old School. Now, some of you uh, have been around uh, this series a little bit, and, and you know what it's all about. But for those of you both live here in the room and on our video campus in Riverview, people of Riverview, we welcome you. Give it up. We welcome you. And we are so glad that you're with us. But for those of you who are newer to the life of our community and you don't quite know what this whole old school thing is about, uh, it's a journey that we began about 10 years ago. We decided uh, at the beginning that we just wanted to kind of start at the beginning of the Bible and the book of Genesis. And we just kind of wanted to walk our way through it. We thought we would spend, you know, maybe 10 or 15, maybe 20 weeks on the whole Old Testament and kind of just get the big picture of the deal. We thought we'd start at Genesis because, listen, sometimes you have to look backwards in order to look forward. And we wanted to see the whole story of God, and we wanted to find out how you and I fit into that story. Because it's a never-ending story, it's an ongoing story, and we wanted to know how we fit into the never-ending, ongoing story of God. Uh, so this crazy idea that we would kind of walk through it in 15, 20 weeks or so, um, kind of went by the wayside because as soon as we got into it, a whole bunch of people uh, here at Metro started to ask all these questions. They started going, wow, we want a little bit more of that. And, and I gotta be honest, uh, when I got into it, uh, I really fell in love with the teaching of the Old Testament and I was learning so much and I just wanted more of it and so we kind of threw out the whole idea of a series and we just said we're just gonna spend as much time as we need to in each book of the Old Testament Bible and we're just gonna walk our way through. So every single year as a church, we kind of go back for X amount of weeks and we revisit this topic and we just take whatever's next and we try to say, God, speak to us. Speak to us through these words, these ancient words. Let them not only change the world back then, but let them change us right now. Right now. So y'all with me on this? All right, so here's what we're gonna do. Here's what we're gonna do. We are gonna begin um, just by taking a moment and, and we're gonna ask God to speak to us. Now, I don't know uh, where you're at with this whole spiritual journey thing. I mean, you could be brand new to this thing called faith. And I get that. But I think God wants to speak to you no matter who you are, no matter how long you've been trying to figure out this whole God thing, I think he wants to speak to you through these words even tonight. So would you just join me just for a moment and just bow your head together and let me lead us into prayer at both campuses. Here we go. So Father in heaven, we take just a moment to quiet our hearts, to quiet our souls before you, uh, admitting that we all come from very, very different walks of life, very different pasts, different struggles, but God, we all ask the same thing tonight. Speak, oh God, for your child is listening. We want to hear your voice. That's why we're here. Speak, oh God, for your child is listening. And the people of God would say, amen. 
Amen. Now, I got to confess that I've been working on this series for a few weeks now, and I have felt completely overwhelmed by it, because if you ask any Bible scholar or Bible teacher out there, they would tell you uh, that this is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. And, and they would also tell you that it is a very, very difficult book to teach. Some would say it's an impossibility to teach, and I got to admit it, I want to do it well. I want us to walk away from this going, man, I am glad that I'm part of this because I, it's such an important book. I just want to get this right as a church. Uh, but this book is, it's, it's, a, it's a vast book and its structure is, is very complex and the material uh, of which this book speaks is often historically unrelated to our world. It's, it's almost hard to uh, put yourself into the narrative of the story because the world was just utterly different because in this book, it... It, it blends these sweeping historical narratives. The world, we're going to learn, was at the prefaces of all kinds of sweeping changes, huge, grand changes in the scope of humanity, was all at the edge of Isaiah's day. The world was changing. And, and so Isaiah was speaking into this changing world, and yet he was speaking to the present day people in which he was living, right? He wanted to move them toward the heart of God as well. And of course, if you were to study this book, you would also see that it has a prophetic voice to it, that it, that it moves forward, that it looks forward, and it speaks not only to the generation of his day, but it speaks to the generation of our day. And everybody in between, this is, you cannot miss this in the storyline of this book. And so this is a book that you just can't skim Casually, you just can't kind of go over it because it deals with the never-ending, changing, uh, the never, never ever changing character of God. It speaks to the nature of God, the bigness of God, and the goodness of God. And, and if we were not careful, we would miss that. We would miss that because of its complexity. So if you were to read this book, you would see that it is beautifully and eloquently written. I mean, it is a literature masterpiece. It really is. It's an amazing book. Uh, and, and the thing is, it's written in such a way that it is written to those of us who believe and to those who struggle with belief. One of the bents of Isaiah is to convince you to believe. It is to assure your faith. It is to move you forward in, in your walk with God. And so this makes a serious student of God's word pause for a moment and want to read it again and again and again. And we go back to this book. And so when you first read it, you go, I don't quite get it. And you want to go deeper. You want to know it. And so you read it again. So it's been said that one of the greatest weaknesses within the modern Western church is literally the poverty of our knowledge of God. And Isaiah, in this book, it speaks into that poverty. Listen to me, it, it informs us about the character of God and, and we can't seem to articulate God's nature. We can't seem to articulate his attributes. Uh, we don't seem to know how God often fits in our daily lives and, and we have trouble understanding just how big and great and glorious and good God really is. And listen, friends, Isaiah speaks to that. And he lifts us in those ways. And he says, you're going to know the heart of God through these writings. He wants us to understand the character and nature of God. He gives voice to it. And sometimes in the kingdom of God, for those of us who say we follow, for those of us who say we believe in the kingdom of God, we, we get lost. Uh, the, the, the God's presence gets lost in our world. And sometimes we become superficial and we become cheap. And we become dirty and materialistic and, and sometimes we forget the, the, uh, these things won't, we, we forget the things that we try won't remedy what's broken in our souls. 
And Isaiah reminds us of that. He gives voice to the brokenness of humanity. And he says, your answer is not in this world. It's in the character of God. It's in knowing who he is. And that's what Isaiah speaks to. And my hope is, is that sometimes the discouragement we face in this world because we get discouraged living in this world and we start to look to all sorts of different things to lift us. We look to politics. We look, we look to education. We look to money. We look to social structure in order to lift us, right? But in a world that's full of faith and different kinds of faith and ideology, we can often feel out of date and out of step with the world, can't we? And Isaiah comes along and he says, no, 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 no. Your faith can be rooted and grounded in the greatness of God. And that he points to this coming Messiah who we name Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Do not miss it. And Isaiah speaks to this. And we need to know this. We need to get our minds and our hearts around it. So my hope is, is that through this series, that you will walk away not only having an elevated understanding of the book of Isaiah, but my hope is way bigger than that. That you'll be able to take your next steps toward God. Because listen, God is the only point of this book. If you read Isaiah, you will see that every word Isaiah utters, every word Isaiah writes, is designed to tell us about God. He is the central teaching of this book. He is the central thought of this book. And Isaiah has one desire, to move his people then, and the coming generations, which would be us, toward the heart of God. He doesn't want us to miss God. And so if you are the note-taking person, and this is what we're gonna do with this little uh, series, at least for today, we're gonna start with an overview picture of the book of Isaiah. I wanna catch you up to speed because I wanna put you into the narrative. I wanna put you into the context historically of what is going on in the world and how this book rests. Now, later on, we're gonna get into chapter and verse and we're gonna get into the nitty gritty and you're gonna learn all kinds of things. It's gonna be great. But today, we just wanna get the overview. So if you are a note-taking person or maybe you are a camera picture-taking person, uh, you might want to write these words down. Here's the first thing, is that these are the, uh, Isaiah, write down Isaiah and his times. Isaiah and his times. You need to know where Isaiah fits into the story of humanity. Now what's interesting is where he is placed in the Bible itself, where his book, where his writings are placed in the Bible. Um, so before we get there, I gotta give you an update on on how the Bible works and how it's structured. Now, forgive me if you know all of this, if you know all this stuff, just forgive me, but I feel that I just need to elevate the understanding of some people who might be newer to the scriptures. Is that okay? So I just wanna get around this for a little bit. So the, old te the, the Bible is, is one book, one book broken into 66 little books. It's really 66 little writings that all come together to make up the Bible. And the Bible has two major sections to it. Uh, one is called the Old Testament and one is called the New Testament. Have you heard this? Okay, so there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and uh, the Old Testament, it tells the story of God from the very beginning until the times of Jesus. And then essentially the New Testament tells the life of Jesus and his church, that's us, afterwards, and how it grew and it changed the world. And so the, these two major sections, the Old and the New Testament, they make up what we call our Bible. And they're all designed, they all work perfectly together to point us 
to the person named Jesus. Now, the Old Testament part of the Bible is very interesting. It was written over a thousand year period and uh, has 39 little books within it. And they're powerful, powerful books. Books worth studying, books worth knowing. And they have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And the reason they have been around for thousands of years is because they are God-inspired and God-handed to us. Even though humanity has tried to eliminate it, humanity has tried to destroy it, God says, I want this book to go forward because it is my word to you. Now, what's interesting is the Old Testament part of the Bible, uh, many times we start in the book of Genesis at the beginning and we just say, I'm going to read it straight through. And you can do that, that's fine. But the Bible that we have is not arranged chronologically. So if you start to read it and you start putting stories together, you're going, I don't get it. This doesn't seem like it's in order because it's not in order. The, the Bible's not arranged chronologically. The Bible is actually arranged in the Old Testament in what we call groupings. And there are five major groupings in the Old Testament. And you need to know this, okay? And so if you were a note taker, you might want to take a picture of this. The first grouping is called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch uh, it literally consists of the first five books of the Bible. And it comes from a very simple Greek word, Pentateuch. Penta means five, and tuch means books. So five books make up the first five books of the Bible. They call it the Pentateuch. Some people call it the Torah. Some people call it the law, but it's all the same thing. It is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, to Jewish people, to Hebrew people, these five books hold the, the highest level of status in all of the scripture. They look to these books to inform them of the nature of God. And these are the books that they have the heroes of our faith, right? Um, Adam and Eve and Noah and uh, Moses and, and Abraham. These are some of the heroes of the faith that are recorded in these five books and they tell the story of God from the very beginning. Now the next grouping of writings is called the historical Books. Now, the historical books are primarily made up of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, these books are an amazing telling of the history of God's people, the Jewish people, going from just a community group into a great and mighty nation. It is the forming of a kingdom. And it tells their story. And listen, it does way more than that. It tells the story of how a people are blessed when they obey God. It tells the story of a people who run into trouble when their hearts veer from the heart of God. Now, we've never noticed that in our lives, right? We could learn a lot from the historical books. And, and then here's the next major grouping in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, these books are called the poetic books or the wisdom books. And, and these books are made up of Job, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon's. And what is so beautiful about these books is not just the beauty because they have a poetic bent to them, but it's because of the beauty in which it it describes how life works. These books are filled with wisdom for living life. If you're going like, hey, my whole life seems like I'm running up against a brick wall and I'm trying and I just keep hitting a brick wall, you might want to spend some time in the books of wisdom because they point you toward God in a way that's tangible and practical. And it says, this is how you should do life. And it gives us the nature of God in a very pragmatic and practical way. Y'all with me so far? The next grouping 
that comes in, in the Old Testament is what we would call the, the major prophets. Uh, and these include Isaiah, there's that name, uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now these books are declared major prophets, not because these guys are more important than the other prophets at all. Not at all. Matter of fact, I often thought that when kind of growing up, I'm like, hey, these are the big guys, these are the little guys, let's pay attention to the big guys, right? Not the case at all. The reason we call them the major prophets is simply because they wrote more material. That's it. That's the only reason they were categorized as the major prophets. And so uh, these major prophets are grouped together in the Old Testament, followed by another grouping called the minor prophets, major leagues, minor leagues, right? And again, it's not because of importance. It is because of the amount of material they have written. And the minor prophets, of course, include Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all the way through the Old Testament part of the Bible. And so this book called Isaiah uh, stands at the very front of the major section called the prophets, or particularly the major prophets. And it's the first name we hear because the prophets are put in chronological order as far as when they fell in the history line of Israel. And Isaiah comes on the scene um, in an amazing time of human history. Now, let me give you a little historical context for Isaiah uh, and, and the times in which he lived. And, and I'll tell you this, I love looking back at history. I love the narration of history. I love the sweeping vastness of human history. And, and I love to look at this kind of a thing. And I'm so excited to share this stuff with you because when I look at this, I, I'm reminded of just how fast the world can change. When, when you see what we're going to talk about, you're going to be reminded that there's nothing stable in our world, that the whole world is moving one way or another, and somehow you and I are in the middle of it all. And let me tell you something, if you haven't figured this out yet, you can't keep the world stable. You can't even keep your little life stable, can you? And so when I look at this, I'm reminded who controls the world. And I'm reminded that I am not a citizen of the land in which I live. I'm an American and I am proud to be an American. I am super glad to be an American. But it's not in America that I place my hope. It's not in America that's going to be my home forever. It's not in America that's going to redeem my soul. It's in God. And when I read this sweeping uh, movement of history, I'm, re I'm reminded that my hope is in God. My home is with God. My redemption is found in God. And, and so I hope that you walk away understanding that God is the only thing that's constant about human history. That every generation needs to look toward him and figure him out. And God is never changing God. And he lays his word in front of us so that we can know him. Not just know about him, but so that we can know him. Amen? Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Okay. So let me begin by just reading one verse of scripture. One verse of scripture. It's Isaiah chapter one, verse one. And it says this, these are the visions that Isaiah, son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's where he lived, right? He saw these visions during the years of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, who were all the kings of Judah. So there's so much history wrapped up in this one little verse. We just need to dial in just for a second because this is a sweeping narration of history. Oftentimes, uh, writers, well, they didn't have calendars just to reference. They just couldn't put a date down. And so in order to anchor their writing, a writer 
would often reference a king because everybody knows the king and everybody knows what the king is doing. And so they're able to figure out the years according to the king's laws and according to the king's edicts and what the king is doing. Does that make sense? And so we learn that, Hez or that uh, Isaiah uh, was in the middle of four different kingships. So his ministry, his life lasted a long time. And what's interesting about these uh, four kings is that we learn uh, from history that, that the first king came to reign in 790 BC. Now that's a long, long time ago. And these four kings mentioned here span one, almost 100, just shy of 100 years of rulership. Make sense? Now, what we're going to learn is Isaiah was doing his, what we call his public ministry for about 60 years of these 98 years that these kings reigned. So he was very young when he started and he was very old when he died because he had a public life that lasted for about 60 years. And, and he was like the pastor to these kings, right? Um, we would say he was the prophet who spoke from God to the kings. So we have pastors in America who pastor our presidents, right? And it's sort of the same thing. It'd be like Isaiah was pastoring four different presidents, four different terms of office. Does that make sense? We're all on, on the same page here? And, and so... What's going on in the, wor in the world uh, during this century had a profound effect on Isaiah's message. His message was centered around what was happening with the people of Israel. Now, uh, Isaiah was a Hebrew, he was a Jew, uh, and he lived in the kingdom of Israel. And he kind of floated between the kingdom of Israel, which is in the north, and the kingdom of Judah, which is in the south. They used to be one kingdom, but at this point in human history, they have split. So I want to put a little timeline up for, that might help you figure out where all this is in human history. So check this out. Um, so you see on the left, uh, we go back as far in history as we can. We say Adam and Eve is over there. And then when we can start dating things, Abraham's about 2000 BC. And then fast forward, you have Joshua and, and the judges and the king and King David and King Saul. And that's all around 1000 BC and all that kind of stuff. And then the kingdom was united at around 1000 BC. So you had Israel became a dominant force in the world, about 1000 BC. Uh, and, and then there's a division in the kingdom. The, the kingdom literally divides. Uh, during Solomon's sons. And so we have two kingdoms, a north and a south. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. Now listen to this. Isaiah the, uh, is the first of the major prophets that come on the scene. And he lands about 742 BC. But if you look right beyond that, the world is about to change. Just after Isaiah comes on the scene, a little empire comes to town called the Assyrian Empire. You ever heard of it? Ever heard of it? And following Assyria became the Babylonians. You ever hear of it? Y'all remember high school? Come on, right? And so that's the timeline in which your teachers should have showed you, okay? Um, and, and so at this time, what's interesting is that Israel, when Isaiah comes on the scene, Israel is secure. Israel is rich. Israel is powerful. Even though they were a divided kingdom, they were living in harmony with each other. There was some sort of uh, mutual agreement in which they were living and they became a dominant force, not only in the region, but some would say among the most powerful force on the planet. And now let me tell you, show you a little map of this. Now, uh, this is about the time of Isaiah when he first comes on the scene. And what, what do you notice? You see the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. You see that up there? Kingdom of Israel and Kingdom of Judah. Now look to the far north, you see just this little tiny country called the Assyrian Empire. 
Well, about three years after Isaiah comes onto the scene, history teaches us that Assyria began to ramp up and build a war machine. And they had a series of aggressive kings and they literally began to expand their empire. And this is what it looks like just 100 years later, just 100 years later from the time Isaiah comes onto the scene. Look at this next one. Assyria has literally taken over the world. Now what's interesting is we're gonna learn that Isaiah has a message as to why. You see, because when Isaiah comes on the scene, everything is good, they're powerful, they're rich. But they have also done something else. And it reminds me of us. They had forgotten God. Who was the source of their blessing? Who was the source of their security? Who was the source of their riches and their wealth and their prosperity? And these people had forgotten God. And so the Assyrian Empire comes in and Isaiah warns them, we're gonna learn through this series, that before they even landed in town, when Isaiah gets there, he says, there's an empire coming and they're gonna destroy us from the outside because we have turned our backs toward God and they're gonna conquer us. And you know how the people of Israel met that? You're kidding me, right? The Assyrians, that's that little town up in the north. Just 100 years later, just 100 years later, Isaiah says they're coming a day that that little town in the north is gonna take over all the land and they're gonna be merciless over us. Repent, turn toward God. And we're gonna learn that there was very little repentance. Very little. And we need to learn from this. So y'all with me so far? Okay, now, here's what I want to do to end our time together. I'm going to, uh, I, I, as I was putting this together, I, I, I will tell you right now, I was so stressed out. This is a big book, and I want to get this right. And so I wanted to not only put a historical context together, but I wanted to put an overview of what Isaiah was actually writing about. And I was reading like crazy. I literally read like well over 100 pages of commentary, which like can blow up your mind. I mean, it's like, I was working really hard at this. And so I started to tell a bunch of our people around here, like, I'm really stressed. I don't know what to do because I don't know how to do this well. And, and I, I want to do it big. And I started to write and I started to freak out over this. And uh, it was just when I was like sitting down to write, I'd already put in literally countless hours to this. And uh, one of the guys at church here sends me a little text message and goes, hey, came across this little YouTube video that does an awesome explanation about the overview of Isaiah. You might want to check it out. And I'm like, you're stupid, you know? And I'm like, you know, I can do way better than these chumps because I've been reading all these other people's stuff and I'm gonna do, I'm gonna kill it compared to those guys. And I'm just like cheap and churchy and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I clicked on it and uh, you ever eat humble pie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you see, I, I gotta be honest. Uh, I love teaching and I love teaching this kind of stuff. Um, but I want something more for our church. I don't want me, I want the best for our church. And so uh, I watch this and I'm like, oh God, this is so good. And our church, I don't know if they're gonna accept this, but I'm gonna play this video for you because it's a, it's, it's a moderate length video, but it is the best explanation of this book that, I've, that I, could even, I can't even imagine something better. And, and so uh, if you walk out of here, uh, whether here or at our Riverview campus, if you walk out of here, not understanding this book, then you're not paying attention. All right? Roll film. The book of the prophet Isaiah. 
Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion yeah, against their covenant great, with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness in the form of this burning coal comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. 
Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin and one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now, which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. 
And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass, like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, open with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with, a new era is beginning. So they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations will see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question, that is, Who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words of hope? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile, in other words, in the time period described by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking, but that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future, and that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile is past. However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us some clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed it on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now, remember, chapters 1 to 39 were designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so, after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own day. So, on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so, the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant. That is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually complaining and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, he's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile to Babylon was not divine neglect. Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon so they could come back home fulfilling Isaiah's words. So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the king of history, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian king Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work and so become his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted 
regarded as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant, but God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem which moves into the next section, 49 to 55. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what Israel has failed to do. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. And we're told that this servant is empowered by God's spirit to announce good news and to bring God's kingdom over all of the nations. It sounds just like the Messianic king from chapters 9 and 11. But then we learn the surprising way of how the servant will bring God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected and beaten and ultimately killed by his own people. In reality, as he's being accused and sentenced to death, he's dying on behalf of the sin of his own people. The prophet says the servant's death is a sacrifice of atonement for the people's evil and rebellion. And then after his death, all of a sudden, the servant is just alive again. And we hear that by his death, he provided a way to make people righteous. That is, to put them in a right relationship with God. And so this section concludes by describing two ways people can respond to the servant. Some will respond with humility and turn from their sins and accept what God's servant did on their behalf. These people are called the servants, and also the seed. Remember the holy seed from chapter 6. These are the ones who will experience the blessing of the messianic kingdom. But there are others who are called simply the wicked, and they reject both the servant and his servants, which brings us to the final section of the book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor, and he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance, where the servants confess Israel's sin, and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them. And so they ask God to forgive them and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, on each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry, and that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which we discover is an image for an entirely renewed creation where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice and bringing a renewed creation, where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. 
Really good, huh? I mean, you walking out of here understanding the message? The, the message is not just for them, it's for us. No matter your struggle, no matter the hurt, no matter the disappointment, there is a suffering servant, the Messiah. His name is Jesus. And he loves you, and he reaches towards you, and he lifts you. Glory to God. And my hope is um, that you will know him, that this book will point you to him, that it will become deeply personal to you, as it is to me. Would it be okay if we just ended together in prayer? Father in heaven, um, man, I love your word. It brings life to me. And God, I, uh, I'm not sure that everybody gets that in this room, but I think there's part of them when they hear of your story, that their heart leaps, that they're pulled toward you. So, Father in heaven, I, I pray that in this very room that our hearts would be pulled towards you. And God, that you would use these words to help us to chase after something of, of real value and significance in our life. Thank you for suffering. Thank you for dying. Thank you for redeeming us, for holding on to us when our world is shaking around us. It is the story of God that you want to redeem us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So friends, even in this room, um, as we kind of come to an end, uh, maybe you want to pray with somebody. Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about this. Maybe you want to connect with somebody. When we, when we say amen, instead of going out the back doors, maybe you want to come forward and up to your right, to my left. We would love to connect with you and pray for you and lift you up and to point you to the Savior. All God's people say, amen. Amen. God be with you, my friends. Uh, let somebody know about Metro. Invite them back next week. Uh, we're going to dive deep into this. Later. Later.